Good morning. You are listening to NPR News. I'm Ewan Kerr. We are talking to two great writers today. Later in the show, Jason Mott, whose extraordinary new novel titled Hell of a Book, tackles the subject of young black men dying at the hands of law enforcement, seen through the eyes of an author on a chaotic book tour. We hope you will join us on air by calling with questions or comments at 651 651- Two two seven six thousand, or tweet me at Ewan Care. That's at E U A N K E R R. But first, we turn to the Empress of the Blues. In her short but explosive life in the early decades of the 20th century, Bessie Smith not only set the music world alight with her performances, she became a powerful show business figure. She was by all accounts complicated, fiercely independent and loyal, but ended up losing a lot of her fortune due to an unscrupulous husband. A newly published biography of Smith comes from what at first might seem an unusual source. Jackie Kay just finished her term as the Scots Macker, the National Poet of Scotland. However, it's important to know Kay's birth father is Nigerian and her birth mother Scots. She was adopted at birth by a white couple. Her adoptive father was a blues fan, and one of the ways he changed her life was by giving the young Jackie her first Bessie Smith album. I talked to Jackie Kay last week. Jackie Kay, it is a great honor to talk to you this morning. For people who don't know, and I suppose there must be a few of them, who was... Bessie Smith. Bessie Smith was the empress of the blues. She was a great, great blues singer, arguably the best blues woman singer that, that, that ever lived. And really because of her and because of her influence, we had a whole following really of, of women that, that she passed the baton on to, from Billie Holiday on to Ella Fitzgerald. And actually modern jazz music owes a great deal to, to the legendary Bessie Smith. Um, she was born in 1894 in Chattanooga and grew up very, very poor. Um, her mother and father both died by the time she was nine and she lived in a kind of ramshackle cabin where the rats, she said, later outnumbered the children. And her life kind of had a strange trajectory to it. So she was born very poor and then she became the richest uh, black woman in America and then she returned to being very poor again and, and died very young. Uh, in 1937 in a very controversial car accident. She lived a life, she really did, but I'm curious how she came to be so important to you growing up in Scotland. Yeah, I was really lucky because I was, uh, you know, adopted um, by two white Scottish people um, and I was lucky that one of them was a huge jazz and blues enthusiast. So so my dad bought me Bessie Smith's Any Woman's Blues and uh, I just kind of, um, you know, her, her face reminded me of someone when I looked at the, looked at the cover. Uh, I, I almost felt like she was a familiar. Uh, I think if you're black and you grew up in a white environment, you kind of make up an imaginary invented family um, for yourself uh, all over the place. Um, I mean, I really loved my mum and dad and was very, very happy in the, um, to be adopted by them. But you, all, you also have this kind of lack or something missing. And so you kind of, um, I had a, a hunger 
for those blues and the blues narratives themselves and the stories of the blues captivated me as a kid, even when I couldn't understand the, the double entendres that were in the blues, like the kitchen man I, I thought was just actually making her nice sausages. The Frank Frankfurters were nice and sweet. Oh, I love these sausage meat. It was just like a, I just imagine this man with a big chef's hat on bringing her, bringing her food. So I kind of grew up with the blues and that was uh, interesting too. And uh, understanding sort of sexuality and all of that came with, with, with the blues. Innocence is a marvelous thing sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. I've got the blues. I feel so lonely. I'd give the world if I could only make you understand. It truly would be great. We should maybe put this into context because growing up as a person of color in Scotland, and particularly, you know, a few years ago, the, the, the there were very, very few people of color. I mean, it, it must have been very difficult at times. Yes, it was, and there was there was nobody um, else around apart from me and my my brother, who was also adopted. In fact, when they adopted um, my brother, they said they had no babies. And my mum just made this chance remark and said, um, "By the way, we don't mind what color the child is." And they said, well, really, in that case, we've got a baby for you. So they didn't even think to, to say that they had um, a baby. And then when she got him, she said she wanted another child his colour to kind of keep him company. So a couple of years later, they said, there's a woman coming down from the Highlands and the father of the baby's Nigerian. And my mum said, well, I'll have that baby. So, so I was kind of adopted before I was born, which is kind of a nice, a nice thing to know. But growing up, we kind of experienced a lot of racism and were beaten up a lot and called a lot of names. And so had to kind of fashion for ourselves um, an identity, I suppose, and had to find a strength, quite an inner strength to deal with that. You write in the book that, in a way, you tried to fashion a friend from Bessie Smith, looking at the, the, the cover of the, the, that first Bessie Smith album that you got. Yes, yeah, she, she was like finding a friend. Um, it, isn't it interesting that the people that we love musically or the people, the writers that we love or the artists we love, and we take them, you know, we take them to our bosom in a sense and they become part part of us and we can't imagine really quite our lives without them um, because because in a sense we they become our, our loves and our likes. We can actually make, most people could make, uh, a discography of their lives. Most people could uh, write a biography of their lives that was actually made up of all the all the books that had influenced them and excited them, where they'd felt known in some way. And I always find that a kind of a fascinating thing. And um, when you find familiars, if you like, uh, kindreds, kindred spirits uh, in the people that you that you listen to or that you read. My guest today is Jackie Kay. And she is the author of a new book, Bessie Smith. Turning back to to Bessie as a performer, she she was known as being a, a tremendous stage presence. But what do you think made her so magnetic when she sang? I think she had a voice that came down the generations and a voice that linked to her own 
history. She had she she was working class. She was black. She she you know her her ancestors were were slaves. She had a voice that was actually telling it like it is a raw, unplugged voice. It took you right right down to the depths of yourself, to the depths of despair, and then up again. And so her her voice could be at once very very serious and slow. And and uh, other times have a lot of 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 humour and even uh, up tempo in it. And I think that 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 range of, of of stories, she almost was a kind of representative person, where she told stories for other people. Um, I remember when she visited um, uh, Backwater, the the it'd been a massive flood, and they said to her, you know where's the song where's the blues and so she wrote one specially for them which became backwater blues about the floods so she was almost like a chronicler of her times and the times before her and so it's almost like voice comes out of history and straight into now and it's the reason that her voice still speaks to us and all of the other blues singers around her, because there was so, so many, you know, all, a lot of them with the surname Smith, um, they all recognised Bessie um, herself as being the real deal, as being the, the empress of the blues, the real the real queen of the blues. Uh, even Ma Rainey, who she le- learned a lot from and travelled with, Ma and Pa Rainey, um, would have agreed that Bessie's voice had something quite unique. It was an understanding of timing and tempo and hanging on to notes. It was said that she could be singing and somebody, you know, could go to the toilet in the middle of her singing a song and come back and she's still on the same song. It was almost like she extended and held on to her notes and had a real sense of her own presence and magnetic stage presence. But in addition to that, though, she was, a, a, I mean, a truly fascinating person who really broke a lot of boundaries. Tell me about that. Well, she was. She had relationships with both women and men, and she was very, very open with her sexuality. Um, but she did marry a man, Jack G, who was actually very violent uh, to her, and she kind of fought back too. Um, but his his legacy was 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 quite disruptive and, and disturbing. But she was also could be violent herself, so she was a very complex character. She. She was quite depressive, so she would be kind of very happy one minute and then very kind of manic depressive and very and very upset the, the next. Uh, she she was an alcoholic. Um, she wouldn't really take any nonsense off anybody, so she broke a lot of boundaries in the sense that she bought her own Pullman train. Uh, this is when she became very rich. She was rich enough to buy her own train, and she travelled around the south in this yellow, very distinctive yellow Pullman train to try and avoid. Jim Crow racism, the Jim Crow racism of the South. Um, so, and when she was told to go in back doors of places, she never ever would. She just, she just refused. Um, she also um, fought the Ku Klux Klan single-handedly, and they tried to come and pull the blues tent down once. And she tried to get a bunch of her crew together, and all of them ran off. They were scared, and she just went and took them on herself, and they they ran off. So she was she was um, she was quite a kind of amazing amazing character. That whenever she sensed any kind of injustice, um, she would she would fight it. She she also had a, an impact on the re- the recording industry, which was uh, an, a pretty well it's always been a rough and tumble place but uh, at that time it was very hard for artists to get their dues 
yeah, she had a rough time with them and she was diddled out of a, of a lot of money. And even initially, you know, she was um, recorded by OK Records and in the middle of the recording, uh, she said, hold on, let me spit. <clears throat> and they thought that that was so disgusting that they cancelled the whole recording and they didn't, uh, they didn't go ahead with her. And, you know, another recording studio didn't go ahead with her because they said that she was too dark. So she kind of suffered a lot from uh, what we're now calling colorism. She actually then eventually went on to record with Columbia Records and her first record, Downhearted Blues, sold 780,000 copies in the first six months and she got $200 per usable side, which made her very rich, but she didn't get any proper royalties, which meant that the money was kind of, it didn't keep on coming. And so, yes, she and she had a she had a manager that diddled her out of money and a husband that did too. Um, and once she discovered all of that, she was she was actually quite down about it that people that she trusted could cheat her. And that's happened to so many people in the music industry, male and female. You did a lot of research to write this book, but it's it's also very much a personal, almost meditation on her life and what she meant. How was it writing the, this book? Yeah, it's a, it's a nice nice way to put it. Uh, uh, thank you, um, the, the, the meditation. Um, I think, you know, I felt I'd listened to her for so long um, over all of my life and grown up with her and developed myself with her that I also wanted to weave in some of that, um, some of that story. So I wanted to tell my own story as well as tell hers. So that was one kind of unusual uh, take on it. And I also wanted to, there was so much that was destroyed by her husband, Jack G, that I wanted to try and imagine what some of that stuff would be to bring it to bring it back and to imagine the lost stuff was found. So so some of the book is actually um, me trying to become very imaginatively close to her. And that still felt to me like a kind of a truth. And I think they're the, they're the they're also the parts that have kind of moved readers because it's a different way of approaching a biography. It's not a straightforward biography. I mean, it does tell you, you do get the facts and, of her life, but there's also there's also these imaginative truths that every one of our lives is something else that we can't all be summed up by, that we grew up and were born in such and such a place and lived in such and such a city and then did such and such. It, it doesn't really capture our lives. There's, there's always something else um, because human beings really are full of uh, longing and mystery and secrets and and unsaid things. And I suppose I tried to find a way to say some of the unsaid. We're talking about Bessie Smith today with the author Jackie Kay, who is a Scots poet, writer, memoirist. You have had a very successful career as a poet, as a writer, as a memoirist. Do, do you hear echoes of Bessie Smith in your work or, or feel her influence in your work? Yeah, I think I, I wanted to find a way, you know, of being kind of black on the page because when people just hear your voice or, or just see your, your writing, I didn't have that because I didn't grow up with um, Nigerian parents or Caribbean parents. I didn't have access to... to uh, language in that way to, to expressions. I, I had access to, to, to lots and lots of words like me blethering on now, for instance, blether being a Scottish word for having a conversation, having a blether with you. Um, but, but I didn't have access to, to 
particular language. So I kind of carved a, a, a new language, a new vernacular uh, of kind of mixing up blues with, with, with Scots. And I wrote quite a lot of blues influence poems where they were uh, written in kind of 12 bar beats. Um, so I found, yeah, I find the blues, particularly in my poetry, had a huge influence. You, you wrote a, a truly amazing memoir, uh, Red Dust Road, about your, your search for your birth parents and many other topics too. Um, I, again, was, there, was Bessie Smith a part of that? I mean, she was a part of that in the sense of the of the music. Um, you know, we we always there's a, there's a chapter in that in in Red Dust Road uh, called Mull. It's about family holidays, and we we used to always uh, go on these holidays, and and um, we'd say a word, and my dad would have to think of a song with that word in it. And I remember um, one time uh, I said oil can. Uh, thinking that he'd never find a, a, a song with oil can in it. And he just burst into singing, Oh, the sun shines bright in my oil Kentucky home. <laughs> so, so she always became part of the of the singing family holidays and uh, and part of the ways of, of having a of having a party. She was kind of yeah, in our family like other people were in the, in our family like Martin Luther King, you know, it was just uh, pe- people that Paul Robeson, people that they would kind of refer to with with first names that were almost brought in uh, to the family as people that that we had a kind of massive affection for. My mum was always saying, if I hadn't gone for your dad, Jackie, I'd have gone for Paul Robeson, (laughs) as if if this wee five foot two white Scottish woman would have had a chance to go for for Paul. But it it was quite lovely. And then when she used to try and imagine my birth father, who was from Nigeria, she'd say to me, I'm picturing a Sydney Poitier figure, Jackie, maybe with a bit of Nelson Mandela mixed in. So, um, so that, so that I think my kind of imagining of, of of different people also came from from my mum imagining them, which was a kind of thing that we did together. I'm sure that Paul Robson would have been very polite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he would have been delighted. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You have just wrapped up um uh i don't know if the the a term would be maybe the right uh words uh i was going to say rain as the as the macker the the scottish poet laureate and one of the things that uh, you did near the end was uh a poem which was um animated in a very spectacular way using drones that flew over the scottish highlands um, this done this way because of COVID, because we couldn't get together for the the crowds for New Year the way that Scots traditionally do, and it's an amazing video, and I know it's been seen millions of times, but I I find myself wondering what Bessie Smith would have thought of that. It's a it's a really uh, it's a really great question, um, and it's quite hard, isn't it? Actually, it would be probably make a great children's story, an illustrated children's story, to have Bessie Smith come back and see drones and have drones illustrating poems or blues. Um, yeah, some of the things that we can do technologically now are literally out of this world and are 
ancestors even a hundred years ago would would not have conceived of, of so many of those those things. Um, but that's the same with every every generation. In a hundred years' time, there'll be things that we can't actually conceive of um, right now. Um, and it's really strange that that progress. It's strange also if you try and put these two things as you've just done and put these two things together. Um, it's it, it makes for a kind of weird mashup. And I think we're interested really in these collisions between the past and the present because we're constantly, particularly in these times, searching for meaning. Um, it was extraordinary working with Edinburgh's Hugmany on that particular um, project because actually the pandemic happening led for us to have to think creative, more creatively and out of the box. And some of what's happened in, 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 in that respect has given us all a chance in the world to try and reset, to try and think what really matters, to try and think how we want to live our lives and why we are alive. And because we're living in such strange uh, times, I think those times take us back and forth simultaneously, you know, back to the plague and forward uh, on to whatever it is that we might have next. It's it's such an emotional experience seeing that and hearing your words together. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Thank you. So your book is coming out here in the United States. What do you hope people will take away from it? Well, I I hope that they'll you know if they're if they're fans of Bessie already, I hope that they'll they'll take some solace and comfort in it. And and maybe you know there are funny parts in the book. There's um, sad parts. I hope that they'll they'll, they'll just kind of join uh, me on that on that journey. Um, and I'm I'm hoping that a lot of people actually that don't know Bessie or that want to rediscover her will come back to her and listen to her music because really at the end of the day I wrote the book as an appreciation of Bessie and if it leads to lots and lots of people that haven't been listening to Bessie to refinding her and listening to her then I'd be delighted. I went I'm in Edinburgh at the moment and it's Edinburgh Festival. I went into Ingrosser the other day. Actually he, he closed and I, and I said Are you still you know can you open? And he opened the door and he said, how could I refuse you? You have given me so much pleasure. <laughs> and he was in the middle of, of reading um, Bessie. And he told me that it made him uh, go and find her and play her. And um, so that was kind of really nice being in the greengrocers uh, in Edinburgh, who'd, in Portobello, uh, who'd, who'd turned to Bessie and found, and found her music. So that's what I really hope. I hope people will be like him and go and find the, go and find the music and, and love it as much as I do. Once I lived a life of a millionaire Spending my money I didn't care I carried my friends out For a good time buying bootleg Jackie Kay is a poet, playwright, memoirist and now biographer of Bessie Smith. You can hear her reading from her book at nprnews.org. You are listening to NPR News. I'm Ewan Kerr. And for the rest of the show, we are going to talk with writer Jason Mott. He grew up black in the American South. 
when he went on tour in 2013 for his book The Returned, which actually then went on to spawn a couple of TV series, his experience was so odd and hilarious that it became the basis for his next model. But when the news filled up with the chaos and violence of black men being killed by the police, he changed that story. The resulting new novel is called Hell of a Book, and it's part comedy, part tragedy, and all truth about America right now. Because of the pandemic, Jason is not on tour for his book, but he is on the line with me today. Good morning, Jason. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. We'll be taking your calls, too, as well, if you have a question for Jason about his books, about the craft of writing, or the art of paying attention. Call us at 651-227-6000, that's 651-227-6000, or you can tweet me at Care. that is at E-U-A-N-K-E-R-R. Yes, that is how it's spelled. Now, Jason... Let's get one thing out of the way. Um, you and I actually talked about that and talked during that book tour for The Returned. And I remember the conversation as being both moving and profound as we discussed the story, which is about people who have died suddenly, who suddenly reappear in their communities. You did not mention anything at the time about how weird an experience you must have been having if hell of a book is anything to go by. What were you keeping from us about that tour? (laughs) I guess I was keeping all the mayhem as bottled up as possible. Um, That book tour in particular was such a, it was a very wonderful experience, but it was also very overwhelming. Um, So I was just trying to ride it out at the time. (laughs) Now we should maybe explain. I mean, I don't know if these book tours are actually going to exist anymore because it does seem that uh, book companies have been kind of uh, pairing back on them, but you went from city to city to city talking to people like me who asked you questions about your book, sometimes having read the book, sometimes not. I mean, what was that experience like? Yeah, it's pretty surreal. I think that um, people oftentimes don't understand how bizarre those things can be. Kind of like you said, like it is six weeks roughly of traveling every single day, doing multiple interviews. Like you're just you're almost like a like a music band, like you're always on the road, new city every night, new town every night. And it just kind of blurs together into this kind of miasma of of just interviews and activity and not sleeping and not eating. It's a very wild process. So you began writing a novel about that experience, but readers who go into their bookstores and libraries to pick up a copy of Hell of a Book will find a, a poignant examination of the stream of young black men who die at the hands of law enforcement. How how did that transformation come about from that first novel to the novel that we have now available to us? Sure. Um, So Hell of a Book kind of began, like you said, in 2013, after the returns, um, I wanted to write a comedy about the, the experience. And so about a year or two later, I wrote a draft of that manuscript and it was it was OK, but it was missing something. And I never really understood what it was missing. So I just kind of put it on the back burner. And then you fast forward to, you know, the mid, you know, mid 2010s. Um, and there were, you know, there was Freddie Gray, there's Trayvon Martin. There's this long ongoing list of, you know, incidences and court cases and trials. And it was every single day there was something new in the news about a black person being shot. And. I had a really good friend who was in Baltimore. He lived in Baltimore during the Baltimore riots that occurred around Freddie Gray. It was 
he and I were talking every day about this and trying to navigate it emotionally and psychologically. And I realized that I had, I was just really overwhelmed by it. And so I wanted to write something about that. So I just began writing about my experiences growing up in the South, writing about the experiences of others around me, the town that I grew up in. And I had about half a novel from that. And I remembered the story of the author on book tour. And somehow I just decided to blend the two together. And that's where Hell of a Book actually came from. Your your book begins, and, and I, I keep focusing on the first three chapters as I think back about this. It The first chapter is... Uh, a beautiful lyrical description of uh, a young boy who is following his parents' instructions to become invisible. And he does this uh, with them in the room. And I, I won't say how it plays out, but it just, it tears your heart out. And then the next chapter is basically about an author. Now, we won't say it's Jason Mott, but it is about... <laughs> An author <laughs> running naked down the hallway of a hotel in some unnamed city being chased by an irate husband. And then the chapter after that is going back to this figure of this young black boy. Um, I mean, it's, in, a, in a way, some people would find this jarring, but it works so well. I mean, how, how did you come to adopt that as a, a way of telling the story? Um, so that came about partly for my own kind of emotional self-defense, what I kind of call it when I was writing it. The It was such a personal narrative and it dealt with so many difficult issues of my own life and the way that I see the world and the way that I've kind of grown up in the world kind of, you know, writing about being black in America is almost inherently a challenging, very personal thing to write about. So I had those sections of the boy and those very heavy personal moments. And I needed in the writing process, I just needed a break from that. And I wanted the comedy to really balance that out, both for the reader and for myself. Like I wanted breathing room, so to speak, because I knew that the topics that I was working with and the way that I was trying to present them was being presented in such an overwhelmingly heavy way that no one can slog through that. Or at least I didn't, I didn't want people to have to slog through an entire novel of that. So the comedy became this way to catch your breath and have some fun for a moment and kind of bring your head above water, so to speak, before going back into the more, the more heavy topics. And Hopefully, as the novel goes on for readers, when they read it, the two merge together a bit more to where there's comedy in the heavy sections and heaviness in the comedy sections. I'm just curious. Have, have you had any pushback about that approach? No. Surprisingly not. Um, it seems to be working pretty well. Like um, I think that is it's kind of become like one of the defining characteristics of the novel is that people oftentimes talk about how the pendulum swings occurred so frequently, and yet they were never jarring. They were never disconcerting. They were able to kind of swing back and forth at the times. And that was part of the fun for readers. And so from a writing standpoint, that was the goal. Um, Cause you know, the laughter hits the hardest after the, after the tears and vice versa. And so balancing those two is what I was shooting for. And so far readers are kind of enjoying it. I think. You are listening to NPR News. I'm Ewan Kerr. My guest this morning is novelist Jason Mott. His new novel is called Hell of a Book, and we'd love you to join the conversation. Give us a call at 
0800-227-6000, or you can tweet me at Care. that's at E-U-A-N-K-E-R-R. Now, both hell of a book. I, no, let's let's actually go go back to the kid. the The kid is uh, all the way through this book. The young man that you describe, and he is a. He doesn't say much, but he's an, an such a. Uh, he's a figure who really makes your author question himself. Tell me how you developed him. Um, so the the author kind of comes across the kid when he's in this when the author himself is in this very uh, kind of unstable state. Like he recognizes it, but at the same time he's trying to ignore the fact that his life is kind of spiraling out of control. And the kid becomes this means of balancing himself out, even though the author, the character himself, doesn't quite know it at the time. Um, in many ways, the kid and the author are almost in conversation with one another. Like, um, and they, they are literally in conversation with each other. But like, in the figurative sense, the author sees in the kid the person that he used to be, the boy that he used to be, and the kid kind of sees in the author, prospectively, maybe what his future may someday be. And the two are both trying to figure that out. They're both trying to make heads or tails of what that means to them and how they want to change that. Like, can you change who you are by actually writing that letter to your younger self and warning them about the things that you're worried about? And for the kid, does he have to grow into this cynical kind of alcoholic author or you know, maybe or this, this type of person that this person is or does he not? You... In, in both in Hell of a Book and The Returned, the novel which spawned the <laughs> the book tour, which spawned the, the Hell of a Book, both, <laughs> both this is so confusing, it's so meta. Um, both of them address people's reactions to death. And I mean, how much of a connection do you see between the two books? I mean, beyond obviously the, the mayhem of the book tour. I think there's a massive connection. Um, I often tell people, I think the two pair together really well, both for the reality, like there's, cause there's some semi-autobiographical components to the hell of a book, obviously. And so the, a lot of that was me writing about directly about the returned and my experience writing that novel and going on that book tour. But I also think that because of that, the two resonate because as you mentioned, the return is all about how people have dealt with loss as time has moved forward. And hell of a book is very much about that same topic as well. And so when you read those two back to back, they communicate to each other. There's a few Easter eggs actually hidden in for like hardcore fans and things like that. The two resonate and speak to each other really well. There is another character in the book and, um, I, I, my my throat clutches when I say this, and this is, of course, the news and the news media. And, mm. and uh, how do you describe how do you describe what we do here? We we news people. Sure, no, I <laughs> I struggle with that because I think the the news media is one of the most important components of any society and any culture, obviously. But I think they also have a very difficult task because the goal of news media is to report news objectively. And the reality of life is it is impossible to report news objectively. The quantity of news you report, the type of news you report begins to create a lens and a narrative 
that the culture and the society at large oftentimes will begin to reflect. You know, our life imitates art and journalism is a type of art. And so within within Hell of a Book, there is a lot of discussion about the way that the the Black community and the Black experience has been steered by the lens of news reports. And at the same time, there's a discussion about how the news reports still are missing these very vital components of the the experience with Black Americans and police and things like that. Um, like I said, it's, it's a bit of a double-edged sword. You know, you the media oftentimes doesn't report on issues, very pressing, life-altering issues to minorities. And yet at the same time, they often overreport on certain things to make to build a certain narrative. Um, they overreport on minority crimes that build a certain narrative about minority identity. During during the book, there is in the background, I suppose, because the author is moving from hotel to hotel, just the the TV that is on the news channel all the time, and they're talking about this this death which has happened. And he is aware of it, but he kind of refuses to listen, or he's he's always moving on. He 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 kind of shuts it out, and there's just the not a uh, he he doesn't want to connect, um, which which seems like kind of a, a thing that many people do. That particularly now with the pandemic, um, the mm-hmm. people they've had enough. They they don't want to connect, and so. They're not actually hearing what's going on in the in the community, and that's even before you get onto the the problems that that you're talking about. Yeah, I think that the the novel definitely tries to discuss that because that is to me one of the most dangerous components of the the twenty four hour news cycle and the the society we live in, where you know the entire wealth of human knowledge is at your fingertips in your phone. You can Google anything, get news reports. And so what happens is we do get this overwhelming burnout of events that occurred and you know people that are in need and like this this kind of tide swell of of horrible news and things that we need to do something about and eventually we reach a point where we realize we can't do anything about it and we disconnect completely we become these we just become very 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 isolated and we try to like tighten up and conserve conserve ourselves but the danger in that is the person that's in need, the drown, you know, the person that's drowning, just because there are a thousand people drowning, you can't save everyone. The mentality becomes, well, I'm, not, I'm just going to not worry about saving anyone. And I think that is where the danger kind of comes in. And that's what the author in the novel is dealing with. He sees these news reports. He knows that he should be doing something or saying something, or he should at the very least be paying attention to it and letting it actually impact him. And yet he's trying his hardest not to, because he just wants to have tunnel vision and and enjoy the the moment of success and live the life that he's living. And I think that is definitely a condition of the modern era. So do you see an answer? I mean, <laughs> of course, I know there, there are immediately news directors all over town. They're pricking up their ears. What? How, how do we solve this? I think the, the way to solve it is not so much in the news media's um, it's not in the news media's hands to solve the issue. And that sounds, I know it sounds very strange because the news, the media themselves can't stop reporting the news. And that's their job. And they, they can't stop. If I'm on my phone and I'm Googling, you know, and I just bring up Google and it lists 30 different terrible news reports, that's not the media's fault. The people reporting the incident is not their fault that they're, that, 
you know, they're just listing these anomalies. And when you get enough anomalies, they seem like the normal world. Um, the responsibility lies on the individual who is encountering that and who is trying to find a way to process all of that news media and to understand that you still can impact things. You can't save the thousand people that are drowning, but maybe you can save the one person in front of you. And that's good enough. It's not as good as you want it to be. We want to save the entire thousand people. We want to solve all the problems, racial issues, minority issues, global warming, climate change, the, the pandemic. We want to fix all of them. And we figure out we can't fix any of them. We can't fix any of them. Maybe we just stop and know like we have to actually decide to, I'm going to fix this one thing here in front of me. And that will be enough for today. And then tomorrow, maybe I'll participate in the next thing in front of me. And that is how we affect change. We take the small pieces and don't try to solve the entire puzzle. We're talking this morning with Jason Mott. He is the author of Hell of a Book, which uh, has just been published. And it's it's a hell of a read. Um, I, <laughs> I, I am sitting in a studio right now, just a few miles from the the place where George Floyd was murdered. And I mean, knowing how long it takes a book to be written and knowing that you began this process, uh, what, eight years ago with the initial thing, um, as it came closer to publication and you saw what was happening in Minneapolis and then what happened across the country and then across the world, how did you feel about your book, which deals with so many of these issues as it was about to hit publication? There was a kind of kind of double-edged um, reaction to it where a part of me felt very – felt good about the prospects for the book. And I don't mean in terms of like sales and things like that. I mean in terms of trying to help people navigate what they were seeing. Um, Hell of a Book wants to help people navigate a lot of the complex racial issues and kind of explain how these things happen and explain a lot of the, the, the plight and like the challenge and just the existence of being black in America. And during the riots and during things that were happening in 2020 in particular, where that kind of culminated in this kind of upswell of things, I was watching all of that and I was thinking the Hell of a Book will actually maybe help people on the outside navigate this and help people on the inside navigate it as well. So there was a positive feeling behind that. But then there was also a very negative feeling of the realization that hell of a book will unfortunately always be contemporary. Um, you know, the things that were happening last year, things that are happening aren't new. They trace back to the beginnings of America and they will continue to persist until we all decide to really face that. And the problem is we're not all making that decision. And so hell of a book and its discussion on the, the structures and the things that cause these events will always be a contemporary type of book. And that is the bittersweet sadness of it all. Like I, I want the book to become outdated. I want the book to become, to reach a place where we've solved these problems and those, the book doesn't, doesn't resonate anymore and doesn't speak to the current world anymore. But I think America is a very long way away from that. It is remarkable. Well, I don't know. I mean, it, in, in many ways it feels like America has, changed almost fundamentally as a result of what happened here. Uh, but but then, of course, time passes and so many things remain the same. Uh, it's it's, yeah. it, it's that, that kind of uh, feeling of maybe doom is too strong of a word, but here we go again. 
Yeah, I don't think it's I don't think doom is necessary the the thing that we need to take away. But I do I do admit like the problem with racism and let's, let's, let's like that's the root core of all these things. The problem with racism is it doesn't really go away, it just mutates. It moves to another location and changes the way it looks and becomes a slightly different version of itself. And so we assume, oh, we fixed this problem. Um, you know, we got rid of Jim Crow laws and now we've got redlining and we get rid of redlining and now we've got credit loan issues. We get rid of that. We've got police issues. And it just can't it just keeps mutating and moving through America. It's a, it's a very terrible virus that we can't quite seem to get rid of because part of America's challenge is we still don't want to admit that it is a part of us and we need to like all stop and like try to fix this thing. Um we, we want this one fail swoop, one piece of legislation to solve all the problems. And the reality is that's not how it works. It doesn't begin with the legislation. It begins with the culture that we kind of exist in and the way we interact with each other and how we view our history, how we view our present, how we view our future. It's a much more um, daily fix than it is a one-shot miracle cure. And that's the problem. We want the one-shot miracle cure for racism, and it doesn't exist. You... There are many, many surprising things in Hell of a Book, but one one which really sticks out is the presence of a film star, one <laughs> Nicolas Cage. He has, he has yes, a, indeed. a brief but important role in the story. Um, I mean, what, what gives with you and that guy? I mean, he's, <laughs> of all people, to be giving philosophical advice, why... Nick Cage. So I am the biggest Nick Cage, one of the biggest Nick Cage fans in the world. Like I have been for my entire life. And like, I don't do it ironically the way some people do. Like I am a legit Nick Cage fan, but part of why he really fit into this project and he has this appearance is so much of hell of a book is a discussion of identity and how, how people are viewed through the lens of others and how that oftentimes influences the lens through which we see ourselves the book wants to talk about this owning your identity and owning who you are. And one thing about Nick Cage, and I, I've never met him, so I don't know him personally, but just from seeing him and watching interviews and seeing his work, he understands how the world sees him and he controls that narrative and he owns that narrative and he found his own place in that narrative. And I think that is a really powerful thing for anyone to do to not only under to one to understand how others see you is an extremely complex thing to do, and then to control to own that narrative and really steer it and make it a part of your identity, like to really be empowered by it. That's really fascinating to me. So that's part of why he actually fascinates me as a person. So has has he been in touch? I mean, since he has such a pivotal <laughs> role, I mean, I'm sure he immediately picked up the phone and called you. Or <laughs> I wish. I absolutely wish. Um, yeah, I keep telling him I got to tell my agent to try to get him a copy of the book or something like I would love to I would love to have a chat with him because, again, he does fascinate me as an individual. Um, and, yeah, I think it's just, I also just think he's a, he's, a, he's a great actor. So we, we just have a couple of minutes left here. But what are you working on now? Yeah, so right now I'm working on a new book. Um, I'm not sure what it's about actually yet, which is kind of how my process works. So it's I'm a good place to be. To yeah. talk about things. It is, yeah. Um, I think you, at least for me, I've learned that I have to just dump things out. You know, of free frame. People call it the Lego block theory. We just dump all the Legos out and see what you've got later. 
Um, so that's kind of where I am right now. I'm working on a new project. Uh, actually, when we get off, when we finish here, I've got to go back to work and do some more writing. But yeah, it's a new story. Um, right now it's got some more comedy in it. So I think that should be very fun if it stays. And yeah, I'm, I'm having a good time right now, working on new things and just seeing where things take me. Which, of course, leaves the, the huge question, if public health allows, will you go on a, a book tour again? I would love to go on book tour right now. As much as I trashed book tour and talked about it in the novel, after a year and a half in quarantine, I want to go somewhere and, and meet people. <laughs> good, good. Jason Mott, thank you for joining us today. Jason Mott is the author of several books. His newest is called Hell of a Book. He joined us today from his home near Wilmington, North Carolina. Today's show was produced by senior producer Susan Davis. been listening to a recording of a live radio show on NPR News. You can hear Mike Mulcahy, Ewan Care, Catherine Richard, and other guest hosts during a live call-in show at 9 a.m. weekdays throughout the month of August. Looking for Carrie Miller? She's back talking about books and ideas at 11 a.m. every Friday starting September 10th. Thanks for listening.